This is a recording of a Pages of Hackney event that took place on Friday the 14th of October 2022 when we welcomed Emily Ogden and Adam Phillips to the shop to discuss Emily's essay collection, On Not Knowing, published by Peninsula Press. Emily Ogden is the author of On Not Knowing, How to Love and Other Essays. Her first book, Credulity, A Cultural History of US Mesmerism, came out with University of Chicago Press in 2018. Her writing has appeared in the Yale Review, Critical Inquiry, the New York Times, American Literature and the LA Review of Books Quarterly Journal, among other publications. The chair for tonight is Adam Phillips. Adam is a practising psychoanalyst, author and essayist. John Banville has praised him as one of the finest prose stylists at work in the language. He's the author of many books, including, most recently, The Cure for Psychoanalysis and On Getting Better. Thank you, Joe, and thank you, Pages of Hackney, for having us. This is wonderful, and thanks to all of you for being here. I thought I would just start at the beginning, um, which is invariably my practice after I think of starting somewhere in the middle. So um, so these are the first few pages of the book from the chapter, How to Catch a Minnow. The world burns, yet the fire is not bright enough to read a map by. Nor am I mostly reading. I'm still sweeping the dirt out of the corners and intercepting my children's arms halfway through the act of smashing a glass on the stone ground. I am still trying to use fruit before it rots. The light flickers. Revelation is no common thing. When it comes, it really lasts. It is not necessarily present at the end of the world. How to love, what to do in the dim times. These are the questions of on not knowing. From the book of Revelation in the Bible, most people remember the apocalyptic prophecy. But the book begins with ordinary failures. A sword-mouthed being dictates John the Revelator's letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. The angel scolds Pergamum for worshiping false idols. He tells Sardis, wake up. In the letter to Ephesus, he complains, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Before the end of the world, even while the world is ending, the book of Revelation concerns itself with dailiness, as though there were a close relationship between the lightning strike and the dimness into which it subsides. The world has mundanity, duration, bullshit. Many nonsense tasks must be completed. False spirits must be tried and rejected. Long periods pass in which nothing illuminating happens. Write to Sardis and tell them it can never add up. Write to Pergamum and tell them you still have to hold your children, fetch them tissues, and find boxes for their caterpillars. Leviathan threatens, mostly icy minnows. Looking for the fossilized, for something, persons and places thick and encrusted with final shape, writes Elizabeth Hardwick. Instead, there are many, many minnows wildly swimming, trembling, vigilant to escape the net. A person can want a clear view and not get it. A person can believe decisive action is required and yet not know how to begin. I would up heart were it not like lead, but my whole clock's run down. My heart, the all-controlling weight, I have no key to lift again. So says Starbuck, the first mate of the Pequod in Moby Dick overmatched by the tyranny of Ahab. 
unfitness to pursue our researches in the unfathomable waters, unfitness to act, too. To see the encrusted form might be best, but to attend to the minnows as they present themselves is better than to feign a monumental vision and then live by it. In this book, I try to resist the temptation to turn away from things as I find them. Blurry, quicksilver, unhandsome. At the edge of a midsummer river, a handful of minnows hangs in the bright brown light. Their silver noses point toward the branch that shelters them from the current. They hover with the busy motionlessness of bees. Minnows call the hand. Without decision, my arm darts out. The fish sense my intention propagating itself toward them. They have lateral line organs that permit them to feel as a kind of matrix the motions of others in the water. They are gone so fast, it is as if their leaving caused my fingers to touch the river and not the other way around. It is troublesome enough to catch a single minnow in a stream. Now imagine a whole school of herring radiating silver from every point. Massive schools may improve the odds of survival for any individual fish, although it's not clear why. It might be the case that marine predators struggle to focalize upon a single fish among many. It's not that they're bad at focusing, but that they're too good at it. Their targeting capacity is too easily triggered. The impulse to fix every fish in their sights prevents them from sighting a single one completely. They start to fix their eyes on one. Before they've even begun, they get distracted by another one and try to focus on it instead. The process is never complete. A human being, also a predator, will find it impossible to keep an eye on one starling in a flock of thousands. Conceptual efforts stumble in the face of the world's vast calamitous tides. Nonetheless, it's human beings who, in the aggregate, have set those tides on foot. No act, no failure to act, no use or squandering of resources that does not mark me as the author of another's destruction. Orca-like, I can't focus. Minnow-like, I respond unthinkingly to the fact of others turning. In the execution of my acts, I entail action on others in my turn. As difficult as it is for me to think one thought among a proliferation of thoughts, I would appear to be at the same time effortlessly prolific in my complicity. My school has destroyed a planet. Unknowing is on every side of the predicament. Unknowing is there in the terminal flight into frozen innocence with which some of us try to protect ourselves from knowledge of our culpability. Unknowing is there too in the uncertainty one may feel when confronted with the problem of how to repair the damage. And unknowing will still be there if one finds a way to live that one can live with. For the few fish captured, many more will escape the net. If there is a kind of unknowing that could serve now, it is not the defensiveness of willful ignorance, but the defenselessness of not knowing yet. Can a person go back to the unpruned adjectives of immediate experience? Before one summed up this moment in history, what exactly was it? What lying under the summary? What swimming chaotically beneath any pretense of certainty? What before the predator's eye confounded itself? What was it? What does it continue to be? When I talk about unknowing, I'm not talking about the refusal to know what can be known or about the simple accident of not having found something out yet, nor even, although this is warmer, about the fact that we will each absorb only a finite amount of knowledge in the course of our finite lives. 
Instead, I'm talking about a capacity to hold the position of not knowing yet, possibly of not knowing ever. I'm talking about living with the dimness that I will mostly inhabit. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, just as a preface to this, I just want to say that um, this is a wonderful and remarkable book, and anybody who is interested in anything should really read it. <laughs> Uh, can we just start at the um, at the beginning? Um, how did it come about that the book took this form? Well, I started out writing some very definite essays in which I explained everything you needed to know about different aspects of unknowing. So there was an essay about surprise and an essay about irony and an essay about innocence and and um, there there was a pretty obvious performative contradiction, which was that I was occupying a position of knowingness about not knowing. And so I tried to find my way into some kind of less insufferable tone. And it seemed to be the, <laughs> it seemed to be the case that, uh, that writing about um, situating myself personally w was helpful for that. It wasn't something that I set out to do or thought that I would do. Um, but I seemed to be it seemed to be an effective way of limiting the perspective and making it clear that I didn't see everything. And I, I was also thinking at the time about what it meant to claim to know certain kinds of things, like to know about art or, or love or aesthetic value, things that, it, that involve value judgments. And it seemed to me that I couldn't come to any kind of bird's eye view of those topics I had to situate myself. And so I tried to find a style that was situated and came out of some some more personal kind of eye. Yeah. And did the book therefore end up surprising you? It did. Yeah, it did. Certain essays did. And for a while I was only writing about things that I felt very strongly about. You know, at the very beginning I was only <coughs> writing about things that I, poems that made me cry was sort of the criterion, which I'd never done before. Mm. It's not my usual criterion. Mm. Um, but yeah, what, I mean, what essays were most surprising to me? I d the essay, How to Listen, which is about the opera and my love of the opera ended up surprising me because it had been in a form originally of kind of definiteness that one's tastes have to be, you know, the taste is a problem because you, you've come to love the things that you love and then now you know you love them so you go seek them out in a kind of formulaic way and you become anxious that they'll disappoint you and it becomes sort of like a relationship with a it becomes like a marriage you know um and <laughs> and um and so I had written about that in a way that felt sort of cute and unsatisfying and then I started to really think about what it's like to go to the Met Opera in New York and what I love about that and you know and I it's the it's the trashy chandeliers. I love those chandeliers, yeah. you know. And so those yeah. sort of came back to me. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. the book seems to be very much about, on the one hand, what happens to attract your attention, what you happen to be moved by, struck by, and then on the other hand, not to be too struck by what one's struck by. Because mm -hmm. the book's kind of anti. I don't know if it's anti, but it's sort of anti-revelation. Yes. Or it's really questioning what kind of status we're going to give to the aha experience that we all appear to want. Yeah, that's And if you right. don't then value that experience, what do you do with it? Yeah. And then if you do value it, of course, it can become 
a state of of kind of fixity or you become yeah. routinized which I, I i know i learned from you from the beginning but i've been reading your book um uh, on wanting to change about conversion and that you know this this seems to me the the the, the word you use is conversion the word i use is breakthrough but there's it's similar it's that um that one wants to find these moments of uh, you know of or at least i have sometimes wanted to find these moments in which everything seems subordinated to one most important yeah. thing and you know that everything could be organized under that whatever it might be a, you know a a purpose in life or a, a, a true love or and yes or in essence you know and 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 um and what what is it that one is trying to abdicate at those moments you know that and and i think it's that it's it's abdicating the possibility of being pleasantly or unpleasantly surprised in the, that that you could leave yourself open to those experiences but but it's painful to, to be open to them just as it's painful to close yourself off from why them. is it painful to be open to surprise yeah because it might not come you, you know? mean it's always anticipatory at some level yeah so well, when I, you're surprised you are expecting something i think maybe that's right yeah that's interesting yeah yeah or maybe that it's you know what if you um what if you just sort of go along being bored for a long time? That's yeah. the other possibility, yeah. right? And there's a painfulness to that too. Yeah. 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 Because there's a very amusing sentence. I mean, there are many amusing sentences in the book. But one is your reference to yourself as my long case history in Underwhelm. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's from the opera essay, maybe. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It's from the end of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it would seem to me that. It is interesting to feel oneself to be underwhelmed, so mm -hmm. to speak. But it's almost more interesting to think that might be the project. And if that was the project, what then? Because the book seems to be very, very radical and extraordinary. Because it really revises an awful lot of things we, if there is a we here, have been educated to believe in, like obviously epiphanies, revelations, surprises, mm -hmm. and also continuities. Because it seems to me you're not promoting here sort of endless newness because obviously there could be no such thing. No, that's but true. if you're not proposing that, and obviously it's not a tendentious book, it's not sort of telling us how to live book, but it does have a lot of very interesting statements about, for example, how you might be as you are a teacher of literature without having taste that is arrested, like arrested development. Mm -hmm. So there's a very interesting case in the book for um, not familiarizing yourself with what you think you like yeah and not getting stuck in say the art that you find yourself drawn to so it's a bit like you should be drawn to it but not drawn to it yeah or drawn to it and then undo the drawing yeah. or something yeah there's i mean you maybe need both like often is the case but i i do think i do think people are very annoying when they're talking about their transcendent experiences yeah. sometimes, you know. And so I, I, and I think you can even hear yourself being annoying while you're doing that sometimes, which isn't to say there are no real transcendent experiences, but, but there's, I don't know, they're, they're not, um, really, you have to come at them from the side or yeah. see them through. But it is striking vision. how boring they often are. Yes. You know, somebody is telling you this most extraordinary thing. Yeah. And you're sitting there thinking, 
A, why you're telling me this. And, you, and, and yeah. B, why is it, you know, what's the big deal here? And you just think worse and worse of the person, yeah. you know, and you don't know why exactly, but they just seem terrible, you know. And and so I, I and I think I, I thought about that because I found myself doing it. You know, I have, I'm sure I do it sometimes in, in, in the book because, of course, I'm drawn to that equally as I'm repelled yeah. by it. But... Um, but I found myself thinking about that as, and it's not just a problem for your auditor, it's a problem for you because you become detached from the genre of being overwhelmed by art that you find yourself reproducing. And so I'm always trying to find ways of sneaking around that. Like I, when I go to, I went to the Tate Britain this afternoon and you know, my, 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 my process now whenever I go to an art museum is to have no idea what is there or what one is supposed to see and to just walk, you know, ruthlessly past the masterpieces until something That's right, so. attracts my attention. Yeah. And it's because I have such a, it's so tempting to be dutiful about it and go try to stand before things and stare at them. And, you know, and you feel so watched by the other patrons, like you, you're such a Philistine walking past this masterpiece by Turner or whatever. <laughs> so I just, I just try, I try to let myself be a bit of a Philistine in those situations. And I guess that's what where I would want to make a case for being underwhelmed, that I think unless you're willing to see yourself and be seen as underwhelmed, you will never be overwhelmed again. You know, yes. Oh, yes, or you're actually fighting the wish to be overwhelmed. Yeah, so yeah. You're, you're, as it were, preparing for your uh, epiphany at any given moment. Yeah. So you walk into an art gallery and something's got to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe it hasn't. Yeah, and it and it can't if you think no, you know, no, it no. can't when you no. think that it's going to. But I mean, sometimes it does anyway. That's the amazing thing about mm. opera to me. Mm. Opera mm. seems impervious to this whole dynamic. That's mm. what I love about it. Mm. Uh, opera always overwhelms me, I, even though I worry so much that the time will finally come when it doesn't. You know, but but other forms aren't like that. Um, so yeah, I think it's I think it's it's the question of what you know, having committed to something like. The, the importance of something as absurd as, you know, the importance of taste and aesthetic experience as a central aspect of one's life. How does one then keep uncommitting so that it's possible to remain committed? Um, I assume this is just st- just sort of standard operating procedure for all kinds of devotional practices. I think. Yes, it must be. Must yeah, be. I think, I think that, that it must be the case. I'm not, um, I, I don't have any experience with devotional practices directed toward a god not personally but it seems to me this must be just part of the, the art of that because yeah, yeah. Yeah. it's like i mean you know people are not serial converters mm-hmm. they're supposed to be converted and then that's kind of it yeah whereas william james says as i'm sure you know this that really we should we should be serial converters we should be all the time being converted and then deconverted so so the whatever it is the beam of attention keeps moving on and if you were a serial converter, would you be converting to a new thing each time, or are you rededicating yourself to the Well, it's same? hard to know, isn't it? And, yeah. and the cult, you know, a lot of the criteria in the culture would say you're clearly not really converting, mm-hmm. that you're obviously a very shallow person. Um, you know, that if you fall in love with 10 people, clearly you have no real passion. I mean, that would be the story, and maybe it's true, mm-hmm. but it may not be true. Yeah. And it may be that one's suffering from an inhibition of this because it would create such instability. So. Yeah. Yeah, I find when I think of serial religious conversion, I get very suspicious, you know, in a way that I don't feel suspicious of serial conversion to art, and maybe I should, you know. Um, but but so William James thinks that you should move on to one thing after another as you need it. Yes, but or, yeah. yes, exactly, as you need it or as your purposes change. Yeah. Or your the problems you're solving change. Yeah. Yeah. It, 
I mean, it's really a sort of, you know, safety versus risk story mm -hmm. about the story of a life. Yeah, yeah. Just, I mean, one thing here, which is obviously re related to this, is the book's called On Not Knowing How to Love and Other Essays. And there's a very, I mean, the, love is obviously a big theme in this book. And we're immediately drawn to think, well, what's the relationship between our not knowing and loving? Mm -hmm. Was that part of your, as it were, intention, as far as you know, that this, these two things particularly would, would be brought together? Yes, I, th I think the only time I ever had a one-sentence description of the book that I thought was true was that it was about how knowingness is an obstacle to love. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and at least it is for me, and that the, the, the one can't, and I mean knowingness as opposed to knowledge, that one can't approach someone that one loves with an attitude of having already figured them out, or it's very crushing to them. I, I was writing it at the time, my children are still small, but I was writing it when, when they were even smaller than they are now, they were two. And it's really clear when you're around small children how crushing your knowingness can be to them, because yeah. they, and, and, and it's almost, it's almost impossible not to be crushingly knowing around small children because you know so much more than they do. Yeah, and, you, and they need you to be knowing. Yeah, and they need you to be knowing. And, you, you know, there's certain kinds of things you can't let them do, um, like throw themselves downstairs, which they're perfectly prepared to do at a certain age. But, but on the other hand, you can't just be constantly taking stuff out of their hands and fixing it for them, or you can and do, but it, you, you're aware every time you do it of causing a kind of... Um, of interrupting something that yeah. shouldn't have been interrupted. But you then so enter into a world of really serious risk, don't you? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you have confidence in your children, mm -hmm. you risk them. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have confidence, obviously you inhibit them. Yeah. But it's it's an impossible dilemma that's yes. have to be. It is. Yeah, it is. Because what isn't clear is, beyond a certain point, how much children want to be known. Because clearly, it's at some level, they depend upon their needs and wants being sufficiently understood. But it's quite easy, I think, to go from that to believing the project in life is to be understood. Yeah. Whereas it could be, you know, there are lots of ways in which being understood becomes a defensive procedure. In other words, I could turn myself into someone who's understandable mm -hmm. for your benefit, mm -hmm. so to speak. Mm -hmm. And that would conceal an awful lot of other things. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it could be true, couldn't it, that as one gets older, it becomes a question of how much of one's own unknowingness one can bear in relation to other people. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes I, I have um, in the book, this comes from David Russell, a mutual friend of ours, a story that Marion Milner tells about uh, a game where um, a boy, Simon, wants her to be a fool. And she says, I'm a fool. I don't, I don't have the exact details. But, but this really spoke to me that, that what the required position is, you're a fool. And then you say, OK, I'm a fool. Because sometimes it seems to me with children, the required position is, um, you're a failure, you know, so I like the I, my child was trying to bike up the hill the other day and he couldn't bike up the hill and I said it's okay and he said stop saying that and I said you're very upset it's not okay he said stop saying that <laughs> <laughs> and I think what I think what he wanted was for me to be wrong in some way you know and then and so and I and I, I, I was amply wrong you know so 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 you can't sometimes you only sometimes you can't win except by losing um, and the, yeah. and the best yeah. you can do is lose and yeah. sort of tolerate it. But you, but you would also see, I don't mean you, but one can also see that one's knowingness is a self-cure for an anxiety state. Yes, yes. And so that's the problem in a way, yes. is how you get back to what the anxiety is that the knowingness is there to cure. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it can feel fathomless, that, mm -hmm. in a way, because mm -hmm. it goes back such a very, very long way. 
And that's where knowingness is related to something like conversion. Like you talk about conversion being a, 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 something that you do when you can no longer manage your own complexity. And, and conversion is a form of knowingness. It's yeah. a form of saying, yeah. I, this, is the, this is the solution. This is the one most important thing. And I, I can let the rest of it fall away. And yeah, yeah. But the, in a way, I think the logical conclusion of, of this position is that when I know what I want, I don't. You know, it's like there's a line in a Randall Jarrell poem called The Sick Child, where the child says, if I can think of it, it isn't what I want. Mm -hmm. And it then makes sociability very much more interesting. Yeah. Because on the, on the knowing model, you could think, my job as a mother or father or whatever is to provide them with what they want, as though at least one of us can know. Yeah. And it may be partly that, obviously. It has to be to some extent that. But it might also be to prevent the child narrowing their mind mm -hmm. so they need to believe they know what they want yeah. as opposed to thinking it's an endless experiment yeah. you go on finding out yeah that's right and it's tolerable to go on finding out yeah. in some way yeah. yeah yeah and otherwise you rigidify into a character like a character in a novel yeah where you can list your preferences you know what you like to eat the kind of people you like that's and all that right stuff. Yeah. and it's very reassuring but obviously very preemptive in some way mm -hmm. yeah that's right yeah i um I remember when my kid was two, he, he was very upset and, and he, you know, he cried, I want something that I want. <laughs> Give me something that I want. <laughs> yeah, 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 you do. Yeah, um, yeah, I think I've quoted so many times in talking about this book, something that you um, wrote in your, in your um, book from a long time ago, I guess now, but it, it's very fresh to me on kissing, tickling and being bored. That um, that perversion is knowing exactly what we want, yeah. and and yeah. I th I think that was really, for me, a kind of crystallizing moment of what it was that I wanted to try to um, to to think about. I mean, this book is sort of an attempted self cure for a self cure. You know, it's an yeah. attempted self cure for the self cure of knowingness, which yeah. is an old tendency of mine. But also a scholarly tendency. I mean, I was going to say because it's, it's a lot about your professional identity. This, yeah, isn't it? yeah, yeah. It is, and it came after kind of the, that that identity being secure, and so I could start to think about what yeah. what it had cost to secure it in some yeah. ways. Did writing this affect your teaching? It has made me feel um, a little disconnected from my teaching because I don't quite know how to teach in this way. Yeah. Because yeah. that would be the really interesting project, wouldn't it? Yeah. Not only how to live in this way, but how to yeah. teach in this way. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know how to do that. Um, so I do feel, I, I do feel it has come a little bit out of a crisis of teaching. Um, there's a, 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 you might know Jonathan Lear. The yeah. yeah, Jonathan Lear has a book about irony, the case for a case for irony, which I read late after, I think maybe after writing this, but. But he says that um, irony in the Socratic sense is when you stop knowing how to go on and you sort of stand in the road and you don't you remain committed to the thing that you were committed to, whether it's teaching or whatever. Teaching is one of his examples, but you don't know how to do it. And I feel as though I've been at least at some moments in a crisis of that kind about teaching. I remain committed to it, but I don't know how to do it anymore. I know how to do the routines of it that I learned to do. Yeah. I think that that I think that that's. I think I'm pulling that off on whatever level one can pull off those mm. kinds of routines. But I do, I do. It remains an open question for me how how teaching could look more like writing mm. this way. 
Is it is not knowing how to do it, not knowing what you want from it? Not knowing what I'm allowed to do, you know. I think the problem with teaching for me, and I'd be curious to hear what you think about this, but it seems to me that um, you there are, there's a lot of transferential dynamics in a classroom, especially now that I'm obviously not my student's age, which is still relatively recent for me. When I was obviously something like their age, it was a bit different. And I worry that anything that would be um, sort of transgressive of what's expected in a classroom or transgressive of what we think knowledge should look like might seem almost coercive because I'm, you know, when authority figures say transgress, I think that's one of the worst things authority figures can do. So I worry that that's what I would end up doing. I, and so I, I, I've tried to sort of maintain something like the position of, I don't know if this is, I'm not sure if that makes sense, but I, I, I really don't think like the dead poet society type teacher who stands on the chair and says we abrogate all rules. I think it's very unfair to students. It's frightening. And tyrannical. And tyrannical in a much worse way than it is if you just accept that you're the authority in the room and yeah. and bear that burden. So I don't want to offload that burden. Yeah. And I haven't figured out what, yeah. you know, because this, this book, from certain perspectives, is transgressive um, in its little way of, of academic norms about well, what knowledge looks like. Thank you. Don't you? I mean, it is, if you were to take this book seriously, so to speak, which presumably you and I have, the consequences in terms of, say, teaching, and certainly in way psychoanalysis would be very, very significant. Well, thanks. I, I don't myself see quite what they are, so I don't know how to do well, it. Well, I was struck yeah. when reading this book. The psychoanalyst Winnicott said once, when I'm practicing psychoanalyst, when I'm tired, I start teaching the patient. And that, in a way, is a clue about this, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah. Which is, you know, that, that there's, because we've all obviously been acculturated along these lines, the easiest thing to do is to fall into a kind of informing model. Mm -hmm. I know, and you don't, mm -hmm. and I can tell you what I know. And of course, it's very simple-minded, but it's very, very powerful. Yeah. Whereas, of course, in analysis, in a way, it's sort of the opposite, which is you start from the, well, in one version of this, you start from the principle that obviously no one's going to absolutely know, and indeed the most offensive thing that anybody can do is take flight into their own omniscience. The thing that's going to sabotage development of curiosity is omniscience. So if you, if that's as it were the enemy, or that's what you're up against, you're trying to have a conversation, which is, it's a conversation about what stops you having a conversation, in a way. But it, obviously, it's also about addressing people's suffering. But the suffering is very, very often, the result of false knowing. You know, I, th I thought I knew what I wanted. Yeah. I think I know who I am, and all that stuff. And then the question becomes, how not how you make people change, because obviously you can't make people change, but how you facilitate a process you have to believe in. It's a bit along the lines of this book, which is a wish somewhere, a wish in people to go on being curious or going on want to, or going on wanting to be surprised, as opposed to wanting to come to authoritative conclusions about things. How do you teach people to be a psychoanalyst? Well, it's a re it's a real mystery this yeah because in one sense obviously you can't mm -hmm. you can't teach people what to say when and you can't teach people you can't exactly teach people how to listen but you can show them what you might be attentive to mm -hmm. but once you're doing that of course you haven't got free floating attention mm -hmm. it's already been selected right and so you, it's hard you can't get out of that I think but what you what you can do 
is show people how they try not to have conversations with people. You can, like, what they do in order to stop the conversation And to preempt it. Yeah. Or to over-direct it. Mm -hmm. And so free, I mean, in a way, although you, you don't say this, but and this isn't a model of free association, but it's closer mm -hmm. to promoting an idea of free association yeah. than it is promoting an idea of formulation. That's true. And one of the things that I really tried to do is not have transitions and arguments, yeah. you know, yeah. because I find that so oppressive in academic writing, at least, at least, I don't mean that I find it oppressive when anyone does it, but I hate having to do it. It feels like such a chore. And so, you know, partly I wanted to be released from it. But also I think there's certain kinds of thinking you can't do when you're yeah. making your little transitions yeah. and your yeah. little topic sentences. Yeah. 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 And in a way, the transitions become over-tendentious. Mm -hmm. They it's do. It's as though you know yeah. from where you're going and where yeah. you're going to. Yeah, they do. There's also very... Do you mind if I read a bit of your book? No, that'd be great. Thank you. Um, I'd love to hear that. The book, oh, inevitably, because of things we're saying, is very interesting morally, or if that's the right word. And there's a very interesting section about um, animals and herding sheep, say, and the use of the word ornery. Mm -hmm. And at one point you refer to this. This was in a, uh, it's a nursery rhyme in a, in a collection. And then there's a commentary. And it, this is it. If I had a donkey that wouldn't go, do you think I'd beat him? Oh, no, no. I'd put him in a barn and give him some corn, the best little donkey that ever was born. And this is Emily's commentary on this. The non sequitur is what takes my breath away. No pause to justify the donkey. No voicing of, then responding to, the person who would condemn the donkey. No psychologizing of the animal. He wanted attention, he was frightened, and so on. No naturalization of his behavior as a phase, as what donkeys do. It's not that he's a dumb animal. It's not even that, Christian-like, you will care for him because he is a sinner. No, there is simply no reasoning about it. He refuses. You will care and praise. These are the roles that you and the ornery have with respect to each other. The rhyme instructs. So he refuses, you will care and praise. And the book makes a very, very strong case for managing what you call the recalcitrance of the world without hating it because it's recalcitrant. Mm -hmm. And it's very much seems to be put in the psychonic language. It's a book against a certain kind of narcissism. And it's a book that wants to avoid being in a narcissistic rage with the world and other people. Yeah, that's right. Uh, only because I'm often in one, you know. <laughs> I don't you know, know that I've solved this all? problem. Yeah. <laughs> I remember reading in um, The Transit of Venus uh, about this, I can't even remember the character's name, but she's just awful. She's a, a villain. And yeah. one of the things that's bad about her is that she um, she's always getting angry at the world, the physical world, when it resists her. You know, like her, her coat gets caught in a door and she gets into a snit. And I thought, no, that's me. <laughs> Um, and it and it it is it is a sort of idea that um, th you know one goes through the the day sort of thinking things should comply you know yeah. and so the this radical reminder from this nursery rhyme that things things sh shouldn't comply I mean on some level that's that's what one should I mean on some level it's just not giving a reason at all but if one had to give a reason it would be that. The fact that the world doesn't comply lets you know that you're not alone in it. You know, there's other other people yeah, are in it, okay. right? I mean, that is what is reassuring about unless it's too uncompliant. 
Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, if you think of sort of a child waiting for its mother, say. That's true, yeah, that's you know, true. You know, beyond a certain time, the longer you wait, when the person comes, you can't bear them. That's true. They just can't yeah. come back. Yeah. And so it's yeah. something to do with optimising this, isn't it? A feeling you have that the world is sufficiently cooperative, but that when it isn't, you don't assume it's an insult. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and when it is, you assume it happened by chance or by accident or not by your will i mean that's the magic yeah. of it is that if it if it's too compliant all the time it's as if you made it yeah and then there's no world and then there's, there's no world you. yeah but yeah. if it if it doesn't ever comply then there's no world that's any good to you yeah yeah, yeah. and i guess that's why it's nice that in the nursery rhyme it's in it's about the donkey because it's about it's from the perspective of the person who cares and so yeah. one doesn't have the problem of the infant who meets a world that is yeah. totally inadequate to it it's you know it's from the perspective of adulthood that you've made it this far and now you yes and you'd decide. think in a way if you really cared or loved someone you'd love precisely where they resist you mm -hmm. i mean it obviously sounds a little counterintuitive this, yeah. but, but you it would be those would be the points where you met them rather than yourself mm -hmm. yeah and the question is whether you could bear that yeah and the answer is sometimes, right? Yeah, I mean, sometimes. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. but it, I think probably everybody has the experience of loving the people they love because they resist them sometimes. Yeah. And then other times, that's what's enraging about them. Um, yeah, and the question then yeah. is what happens to the rage? Yeah. You know, so if that, that stays as some grudge or stain, or whether you get over it. Yeah, yeah. Can I just read another bit of the book? Mm -hmm. I mean, one could read, read a lot of this, but anyway. Um, this is about taste, and it's related to the story we're talking about. Um, surprise matters to aesthetic experience, as it does to a cure. To form a taste is a joy, but to have a taste imperils the very pleasure that led you to form it in the first place. There I am, liking the sort of thing I like. I have a personality, but do I still have a passion? Have I abandoned the love I had at first by practicing it? And then you from Miss Jean Brodie, this is a quote. For those who like that sort of thing, that is the sort of thing they like. The expression comes from Muriel Sparks, the prime Miss Jean Brodie, where Miss Brodie uses it to give a frosty dismissal to those whose taste she doesn't approve. But one could give the tautology another turn. It might be taken to describe a problem many lovers of art have with themselves. It's possible to be hobbled by our tastes, or by our conscious ideas of them anyway. Trapped with our ideas of the sort of thing we like, we find we don't quite like those things after all. We don't like only them. We don't like them unfailingly. Taste is not a duty we can obey, nor will it obey us. It wells up from somewhere. It comes in through the side door. It is, at its best, a surprise. And that, of course, makes what you don't know more important than what you do know. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. It's like... Uh, being, it's like Charles Lamb's injunction. It's good to love the unknown. Mm -hmm. and of course, it's, sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. Yeah, yeah. And this is a chapter that's about. Um, this is the, from the opera chapter, which I was going to read a little bit of oh, later. Yeah, and so I'm glad you. I'm glad that you took us there because it's the the germ of that of that chapter is that um, now that we talk about being irritated by people we love, is that I, I live in a household where everybody likes loud music except for me, but occasionally I do like loud music, you know. And so the, the chapter is about loud, overwhelming music, and there's a whole, um, there's parts of it that are not there anymore that were about um, 
the loud music that my husband loves and how irritating it is to me, except when it's transcendently beautiful, you know. So, so I think it is, it is the same problem in a different key of, you know, needing to be a little bit ruffled or irritated by things in order for them to feel like they come from outside of you in some way. Yes, or being yeah. able to see their opportunities. Yeah. As opposed to yeah. insults. Yeah. Can I just read another little bit from that same chapter on opera? You may be going to read this later, but just this brief bit. Um, you say here, I'm skeptical of what I love and of whether I love it or have been pretending all this time to be the kind of person who would. I fear I might have put this taste in my employment, routinized it. I think so because I have. As an English professor, I draw a salary for routinizing my tastes in four syllables annually. Enthusiasm is my day job. Great sentence. <laughs> uh, what else could I do but at a certain point become someone, someone based on the best indications I, I had of who I was? Yeah, and it's such a problem of middle age, you know, to have, if you're lucky enough to have gotten a job that you love, now you have a job that you love. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but in a sense, yeah. then there'd be no cultural history, would there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, or at least there wouldn't be a canon things. of things yeah. that we would refer to, because yeah. that would be taken to be the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to read that chapter? I do. I want to read a part about the opera, because the, the opera, you know, for whatever reason, is sort of the solution of this problem for me. Um, also, I think I might quote you. I might, I might just read a little okay. bit. Can yeah. I just quote you again? Yeah, sure. Because <laughs> I quote you in this chapter, actually, the same one I quoted already, but anyway, okay. we might get to that. The other sense I think we should be struck by among many is, I do not think a person should ever pit, permit themselves to be reliably moved. <laughs> it's, it's, it's worth thinking After about. she has been. Yeah. No, yeah. I know. Against yeah. my better judgment. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so here's the opera. Um, I'm just describing the first... I had just described the first time I saw... Oh, yeah, I'm hitting the microphone. Just an amateur error. There we go. Um, the, the first time that I had seen um, opera, and, and it was the Tales of Hoffman in New York, and it was... I, it, I was in college, and I went with a friend, you know, after we'd We'd been drinking way too much the night before, and we were, you know, we got up three hours later and got on the train. We were freezing. It was just the most squalid experience. And then we got to the Met, which I don't know if you've seen the Met Opera in New York, but it's, it's, it's just this transcendently beautiful, gaudy thing. It's like all carpeted in red velvet and has these huge crystal chandeliers. It's very tacky, but it's like tackiness done with so much money that it becomes just beautiful. I just love it. And it just, it's just something delightful about that whoever decorated it really understood what the opera was. You know, it's not, it's 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 not for tasteful restraint. You know, <laughs> that's not why people go. So anyway, um, I've always loved the the Met ever since then. And then this is a this is a paragraph about the opera. Um, ever since then, my love for opera has been of an intensity that makes me doubt. Surely this time, whatever it is, will not be there. But opera speaks with an air horn, telling you to take your seats, warning you it will go on whether or not you do. Gilded, tapestried, appointed, opera's lavish outlay defeats my equally lavish outlay of self-doubt. The puffy red carpeted stairs of the Met in New York shush me, its art deco crystal chandeliers a few feet too close to the floor promise never to ask if I still love them. 
the high hot air of the foyer blazes with its confidence that I do. In Lucia di Lammermoor, they had a real Irish wolfhound. I am not too good for such ceremonies of waste and expenditure. Opera's Blair gives a balm that a reserved art form, one that knows, I know that it knows that we are playing, would not be able to give me. Dogged ardor meets my skepticism best. And it, I, I, you know, I think there's something about non-winking, non-ironic forms that is just is very, is very soothing to, to the to the overthinker, you know, mm. <laughs> um, and and that's that's how opera seems. It's just there's just no irony in opera, um, may, at least not in the 19th century operas. Maybe some 20th century ones that it's introduced somewhere. I don't know. But do you feel at one point you say in the book, um, I'm not equipped to solve the problem of my skepticism. Do you feel like your skepticism sort of keeps you going? Yeah, maybe so. I mean, it it saves me maybe from doing too much effusing about, um, you know, being stopped in the road by the beautiful artwork and the sublimity of it all and so forth. So maybe, maybe, mm. maybe it's that, that they both have to be in conversation in some way. Yeah. Yeah. All the, yeah. And maybe the same point, but all the one skepticism is a way of protecting oneself from the immediacy of experience mm -hmm. and the, for the potential to feel overwhelmed or the fantasy of being overwhelmed. Or maybe one skepticism is a way of erecting the walls again so they can be broken down. I mean, the, yeah. you know, yeah. the, yeah. the, the problem with, like these kinds of breakthroughs is that they can they keep happening over and over again I mean one thing that skepticism permits is that they can yeah 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 okay. um just briefly before you read there are m there are some riveting moments in this book where it feels as though there's a kind of there is a crisis in it not a crisis but there are a series of crises at one point you say right the question life presents is no longer am I wanted, but rather do I want it, life that is. And in that moment, it seems to me, it's almost as though, the, not that the book is emblematized, but there is something very, very powerfully condensed in that, isn't it? Because once you flip over, because you can see how the project of being wanted keeps you going, not mm -hmm. you, one going. Mm -hmm. But the question of whether you want it is very, very powerful in this, isn't mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. Because the, presumably the question, one of the questions around here is, if we're not really seduced by epiphanies and revelations, what's going to keep us going? Yeah. You know, why continue? That's right. That's right. And this is a chapter, it's funny because I turned to the same chapter, I changed what I was going to read, and we both came to the same chapter, and it's a chapter about a couple of things. It's partly about Eurydice, you know, the story of Eurydice, of course, being that she dies by a snake bite, and her husband Orpheus comes to get her from Hades, and then... He uh, is told he can take her back because he sings so beautifully uh, that even Hades is moved. And so he's told he can take her back if he won't look back at her as she comes. And there's one could offer so many different readings of the scene. But the one that I uh, offer is to, to flip it around and say, well, did Eurydice want to live again? You know, and, and so the question being, does she want to go back? And, and there are a few different um, versions of that question in the chapter. But the question is exactly what you said, Adam, that, you know, have, knowing life is what it is and coming to a moment in middle age where the sort of constant um, distractions of other people wanting one or trying to figure out what to commit to are no longer there. Do you still want it? You know, knowing, knowing what it is and knowing that it won't keep distracting you with these shiny baubles in quite the way that it did. 
And the, the closing scene of the chapter is uh, about um, the a character of a prostitute in um, Fellini's Le Notti di Cabiria. I don't know if you know that film. So I just want to read the description of that scene. At the end of Federico Fellini's Le Notti di Cabiria, the actress Giulietta Messina stands up, turns away from her death, and walks back through the dusk to the upper world. Messina plays Cabiria, an indomitably cheerful prostitute who has carefully saved over years to leave her profession and buy a house. She's in love, she thinks it's mutual, and they marry, but it turns out he has planned all along to kill her and steal her life savings. Soon after their wedding, he takes her to the edge of a cliff to see the sunset, then tries to push her off. She sees what he means to do just in time and saves herself. But now, having snatched back her life, does she really want it? Not at first. She collapses in despair at her husband's feet, crying out again and again, kill me, kill me, I don't want to live any longer. He runs away, leaving the problem of life on her hands. The screen flickers to black as if Kabiria has fainted. We see her again in the twilight. The sunset is over. She stands herself up. Her wedding suit is dusted with debris. A teardrop of mascara stands in the corner of her left eye. There's nothing for it but to walk uphill before darkness definitively falls, to walk out of Hades, following, albeit hours after, in the footsteps of her worthless Orpheus. The question that Fellini and Messina pose, they were creative partners and married, is not whether he will look back, it's whether she will. Hell, you see, writes Andrew Formentel, is an exact replica of the living world where you and I live a surface projected into a cardboard eternity where eras are superimposed on one another from reflection to reflection. But what is different in the living world is our consent not to know already everything there is to know, not to model the desertions of the flimplant man onto every young affair, not to look behind, but to wonder what is up beyond the corner. As Kabiria reaches the road, a little festival of spring suddenly weaves itself around her. For no reason that realism can furnish, dancers, an accordion player, and a couple on a moped populate the road. These happy fools try to include her. They are singing, dancing, covered in flowers. They look about 20. She looks 39. She knows better. They do not. It is as if the dancers say to her, are you a fool? They are the fools. But she tucks the burden under her arm and says, yes, I am a fool. She cheers up though the tear-shaped smudge of mascara is still visible in her left eye. She gives a glance of puckish acknowledgement to each of the dancers, then to the camera, and to we fools beyond it, too. Just before we open it up to the um, audience, what do you like about your writing? I like that it's sudden sometimes. Mm. I, I, that's what I value mm. in it. Shall we, shall we conclude? Thank you so much for your thoughtful questions. I really appreciate it. And thank you, Adam. Pleasure. Thank you. If you would like to buy on Not Knowing, please head to our website, pagesofhackney.co.uk, where you can buy it for collection from the bookshop or for delivery nationwide. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe wherever you find your podcasts for more literary events like this one.